Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we, uh, we get to call you Father. You've given us that right, that inheritance through your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for doing your work on the cross, for living the life that you lived and making it possible for us to be in a relationship where you are our Father. We look forward to now um, being able to spend time together, read your word, and be blessed by what is here. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. It is really good to, to have you here. Uh, thanks for joining us on this, uh, well, kind of like Danae was saying there, the uh, maybe kind of the July 4th weekend. So um, really awesome that you're here. And uh, give a little bit of uh, information about myself. My name is Jordan Evans, and I am the Director of Community Life here at Eastridge. Uh, I started in this position just in January of this year, and I've been so blessed in getting to know this church more and more, um, and just see the, uh, the heart of those that are here and the, the passion that's there and the drive as well to, to be together, to love God, and to love the world that is around us as well here in Happy Valley and in, and in Portland. Uh, and I get a chance to, uh, to dive into one of the parables. So we're doing a series on the parables. Uh, last week, uh, Christian did a great job with the parable of the sower. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, if you missed that, um, go download that sermon Listen to it. You did a fantastic job uh, just setting up the parables, getting a chance to unpack um, what those are and, and how God and how Jesus, I should say, how Jesus was using these stories to really just um, implant, as I, as I would say, or maybe just challenge. Challenge is a good word. He used the word tease. Uh, is what Christian was using. He used the words to, to tease our minds into, into an active engagement into active thought and and that's exactly what it is it's it's these are stories that are meant to stop us get us to think and on the face of it we go oh yeah well that's that's pretty simple but then as you sit with it a little bit longer as you're walking around as you're as you're mulling it over in the day you start to really understand and unpack more and more of what of what Jesus was saying here and what it means for his for God's kingdom so, um, my hope as, as the sermon is done is that you will get a clearer picture and a clearer love for who Jesus is um, and what this parable is drawing our attention to. So, that's what my hope is for you. Uh, I know that was my experience as I got a chance to prepare, and, uh, and it was a huge blessing for me, and I hope that it is a blessing for you as well, if I'm able to communicate things well up here. So, if you have a Bible, this is the time. Crack that sucker open. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles on a back table back there, and you can grab one of those. You can keep that Bible if you don't have a Bible. Take it home with you as our, as our gift to you. Um, if, uh, if your Bible has a little on and off switch on it, um, that's great, too. I use that pretty regularly, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, in, in studying, not so great to use it on a, on, on, a, on a, let's say, like on a device, just because it's sometimes you, you miss out on some of the larger context of what you're looking at. The beauty of a device like that, though, it allows you to really zero in and focus in on a specific passage. Um, so it does have its pluses. Um, so go ahead, grab those, turn those on, um, and uh, open those up. And we're going to be, we actually have it up on the screen as well. So if you're deciding, yeah, I don't want to do any of those things, I'd rather just read it up there. All right, this is a blessing too. It's still the Word of God. Um, so open those up. We're going to be starting off in the Gospel of Luke uh, 14, and we're going to be reading quite a few verses, 1 through 24, and uh, we'll unpack these together. So one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. 
There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them in parables, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. So, let's take a closer look at uh, where we find Jesus, and then we're going to unpack kind of the, the scenario here. Um, as I was reading this passage, I tried to think of what is the most awkward dinner I've ever been a part of. I'm sure all of you have been a part of an awkward dinner in one way or another. Um, and uh, there's, there's a few, there's a few that I can think of. Um, and probably the one that I would share here is, uh, is one where we were getting together with my family. So this is my wife, Michaela and I, and our son, Owen. And uh, hi, Owen. Owen's right back there. Uh, and Owen, we're, uh, we're with my parents. We're up in Canada. We're visiting family. I grew up on the mission field. So I didn't always, I felt like I should know my extended family's names. But it was always hard for me to remember. So it's that awkward thing of like, you're my uncle. Tell me your name again. This happened a lot. I don't have a great memory. But so, so this would always happen. So I'm always trying to remember people's, or remember my, especially my family's name. So we're going out to eat. My Aunt Pat and my Aunt Janice are there, and I'm thinking, all right, Aunt Pat, Aunt Janice, I got this. This is going to be great. So we're sitting there. My Aunt Fran is there also, uh, and so we're all, we're all eating together. We're actually at a spaghetti factory in Banff, of all places. Has anybody been to Banff here up in Canada? If you haven't been to Banff, you need to go. I'll just a little quick plug for Banff there. Um, but you need to go to Banff. So we're eating at an old spaghetti factory in Banff. We're sitting around the meal, talking with my Aunt Janice, my Aunt Pat. And then as I'm talking, I'm starting to, get to realize, like, you know, 
when I'm talking with my Aunt Pat, like I'm, I'm using her name, I'm like, this is great. But she's kind of giving me a little bit of an odd look. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe I got something on my face. I don't know. So, um, so, but, and then I'm talking with my Aunt Janice, and it's the same thing. And then I start to get this sinking feeling that I've swapped the names of my aunts, and I'm calling them the other person's name while they're sitting right next to that person. And I'm like, oh, this is awkward, so awkward. So I share that story because the scene that is set here is actually meant to trigger those who would have first heard this story to go, ooh, things are going to get tense. This is going to get a little awkward. Um, and that's in the first two verses here. So in the first two verses, let's take a look at those again. It says, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. So, we've got some key things going on here. We've got the Sabbath. So some of you are probably familiar with the Sabbath. If you've uh, been coming to church for a while, this, this won't be a foreign thing to you. But some of you may not know kind of how important the Sabbath was in the Jewish community and culture at this time. So, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It's, uh, it's, it's a Saturday, and it's something that was instituted actually in the creation story as God takes a rest, takes a break on the seventh day. And this was picked up on, and this was picked up on by the, the Jewish people. And God, throughout the rest of the first five books, um, you see this laid out. So the Sabbath is important. This is a day dedicated to God, no work to be done. Jesus has butted head with the Pharisees on the Sabbath many times before this. He's healed people on the Sabbath. Pharisees get angry with him. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath earlier in a passage in Luke. That really got the Pharisees upset because by doing that, he basically told them, I am God. And they knew the implications of what he was saying, and they were not happy about it. So that also gives us a picture a little bit. Where we've, got, we've got the other people that are there with him are the Pharisees. Um, now, I'm sure it wasn't just Pharisees there, uh, but the text pinpoints the Pharisees themselves. And the Pharisees are a Jewish sect, um, and they're a Jewish sect of priests. And what they really focused on would be, or what's called the purity laws. And the purity laws, specifically in the areas of, um, what, what, hold on, I wrote it down here, washing, eating, tithing, and then the festival Sabbath observance. So these guys are like, this is our thing, the Sabbath is our thing, these purity, these purity laws are our thing, and Jesus regularly throughout the Gospels, as you read them, if you're familiar with them, you'll see he's always kind of jabbing the Pharisees on this because he, he recognizes that the Pharisees have taken something that is good, but they have appropriated it in a way that they've made it a burden for those that are looking to practice these things, and then they're also just so concerned about the outward appearance that they have no, they give no value to what's going on on the inside. Like Jesus has the strongest words, or maybe I'll say it this way, the strongest words that Jesus has in the Gospels are to the Pharisees and to the, uh, to the experts of the law, as, as kind of, they kind of get put together. And, I mean, he's got some brutal things to say. Earlier in Luke 11, he goes through uh, the, what he calls the woes to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the experts of the law. And, I mean, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them greedy. He calls them all sorts of things. He calls them sons of the devil. I mean, that is, that's a strong, strong word. And this is coming, I mean, think about who this is coming. This is coming from Jesus the incarnate God calling this group because of the condition of their hearts and because they are actively keeping people out of entering into a relationship with God, he calls them sons of the devil. Woo! Ouch. All right, so tension, right? So then you, then you get the statement, well, Jesus is being carefully watched. You think, okay. Well, actually, let's back up a little bit. My first thought was like, okay, why is Jesus even here? Why is he here at this dinner? Why did they invite him? Well, there's clues to that if, as you go back in the, in the gospel as well. If you look at the end of uh, Luke 11, there's a, this is just right after Jesus has gone through all the woes. He's just, uh, um, you know, really made the, uh, 
made, made the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law feel pretty bad, um, or just really revealed their hearts to them, I guess I should say it. And this is uh, verse 53. This isn't up on a slide. I'll just read it. This is verse 53, Luke 11. When Jesus went outside, so he had just gone through doing all those woes. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So now their goal, and, and you'll see it, and it's, it's something that they actually bring to fruition, is to trap Jesus in something, accuse him of something, try to take his authority away and take his popularity away. Um, so that is what their goal is. That is why he's there, um, and, uh, and that's why he's being watched carefully. So the next thing we've got is a person in suffering. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Okay, now why is this guy here? Like, the Pharisees would not have invited this guy. In this culture at this time, abnormal swelling was related to, or they, they associated that with, to uh, immorality. So there's no way a Pharisee would have wanted to have been connected because they thought, maybe this immorality might rub off on me, and I really don't want, you know, this person is clearly on the outside. God has done this to them, so they're out. So there's no reason that he should be there. But they've invited him, and you wonder, okay, why has he invited them? And this is, it's, it starts to reveal the heart of the Pharisees again because, and honestly, my first thought was like, okay, well, did the Pharisees invite him here so that they could try to bait Jesus into something? Like, are they using this guy as a pawn? I mean, that's pretty cold-hearted. And it seems, that's, it seems too far. But as I started reading through commentaries, nope, they all pick up on this, and they all highlight the fact. And and, and the reason that they, that they zero in on that is, is actually, if you look in the next verse, so verse 3, it says, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, the NIV translation here, they've got a word there, the second word in, the, in that uh, verse, the word asked. Now, if you look at an ESV translation or an NASB translation, they'll actually use the word responded which is uh, what I think is a better, better translation for that word. And so what you see is nobody has said anything. The situation is here, but Jesus responds to the situation because he knows what's going on. And he asks a question. And of course, the Pharisees are like, uh, they're not going to say anything. So their silence, well, let me, let me say it this way. The question isn't a hard question to answer, Right? Should this guy be healed or not? Who cares if it's the Sabbath? Silence. Now, to us, in our context, we, we don't necessarily feel the weight that the, I would say the, the burden that a Pharisee would have felt with this question. Because if you answer this question in a yes or a no, it puts you in one, on one side of the aisle or the other. So if you answer yes, it's okay to heal this guy, the other Pharisee can be like, that guy's soft on the law. He's soft on the law. Now, if you answer no, oh, they are just, that, yeah, that, that guy's blind to human suffering, you know? So you're, they're caught in this, in this, in this situation, and what they, what they fear the most is their peers around them. I don't want them to think that I'm one of these things or the other, so I'm just going to not say anything. And Jesus highlights that. Um, so he, he draws attention to the, to the suffering man, asks the question. He doesn't do it in, he doesn't do it in hiding or on, off to the side. And the Pharisees make no response. He heals him, sends him on his way, and then Jesus gives him a second chance. All right, let's try this again, okay? And he says, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Like, come on, guys, like... This, 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 is pretty, this is pretty basic. Now, in, in, for, for the Sabbath, there was a specific rule that said no healing on the Sabbath unless somebody is in mortal danger. Then you can heal them. There was also a rule that talks about if something falls into a well. So that's why he's drawing these, these specific conclusions. If something falls into a well, like the answer to that is yes, you must save a child coming out of a well. Or if, if there's a child that's fallen in, save that kid. That's important. If an ox falls in, you can throw some stuff in, maybe it'll get out on its own. If it doesn't get out, it's not in moral danger, you can just leave. So there isn't really like too much of a conflict here 
outside of the fact that Jesus is highlighting this to them and they don't want to accept his teaching. They don't want to accept the authority that's there. So, let's see. So far, in these first six, uh, first six verses, Jesus is the only one doing anything. Everybody else is just quiet. But let's take a look at what actually does get these guests, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, into action. What gets them moving? All right, so that's going to be the next set of verses. When you notice how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So, suddenly, oh, dinner's about to start. Everybody's scrambling. Oh, hey, let's, let's start moving now. We've got to get our spots. We got to, you know, I've achieved this level of, you know, memorization of all these passages. I should be in this section. If you want a great rabbit trail, look at how things are organized as far as seating goes around one of these banquets, what would, what would have been considered one of these banquets. They've got like this three-part bench thing, and the most important part of the bench is here, and then there's these other parts of it, and all of them, it's like, it's very, very hierarchical, very specific, so everybody's jockeying for spots, you know, you got like, you know, Pharisee musical chairs going on here, pretty exciting. Um, and so, they're doing this, and then Jesus notices, and he's like, man, this, this is what really drives them, this is what's in their heart. Being able to know where they are, exalting themselves, and then making sure that that is recognized by those that are around them. Right? So, um, he goes through, tells them, tells them this parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited you both, um, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, there could be a way to actually kind of translate this or take this and say, hey, you know, this is pretty worldly. I mean, you could kind of cunningly actually interpret this and go, like, hey, you know what? Look, I'm going to take a spot that's like four spots down than what I should take. But then someone will notice and be like, no, come on up here. Come on up here. You shouldn't be in that spot. So then there's kind of this angle where you're like, you know, someone could cunningly um, translate this in their own benefit. But Jesus, with verse 11, just basically says, no. Anyone who tries to exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So again, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. Um, all right. So right there, Jesus has spoken to the guests. He now points his attention to the host. You know, Jesus is not going to leave anybody out. This is great. You know, awkward right? Okay, so he speaks directly to the prominent ruler of the Pharisees, and he says this to him. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Generosity. What does is, what is our generosity look like? What is the condition of our hearts? He's looking at the host. Now, is, it, is Jesus in this passage saying, don't ever invite your friends over for food? No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is, when you are looking to be generous and to serve, is it always done in a way so that people will notice? So that you can be get your reward then and there? Is that the heart of the situation as he's looking at the host of, of, this, of this big banquet? So, the challenge here is to serve and to give intentionally without expectation of receiving in return. So, again, what are the, what, what are the primary motives for this Pharisee, to, this leader of the Pharisees, to put this banquet on, right? When we give to receive, our reward is complete, but when we give without expectation, our reward is yet to come. So generosity. Now, in these kind of three sections here, the first one wherein Jesus does the healing, then he talks specifically to the guests during the second portion of it, and the third portion he's talking to the host. Jesus is highlighting to those present what God values within his kingdom. And what does he value within his kingdom? So, we look at the first one, mercy. God values mercy in his kingdom. A compassionate heart 
for those that are in need or distress that is rooted in the understanding of how much compassion God has poured unto them. So not just mercy for mercy's sake, but mercy as a response. Humility in verses 7 through 11. A heart that recognizes its true position in relation to a holy God and to the people around them who are made in his image. Humility. Generosity, verses 12 through 14. A heart that serves or gives as a response to God's generosity and to an observed need without expectation of receiving in return. So, each of these attributes, all of us in this room can work really hard to make them happen. What I would, what I would call kind of a, an artificial growth, right? You're working super hard to be humble. I'm working super hard to be humble. But in that process, what's most likely happening is there's pride that's creeping in because you start to achieve humility, let's say. You're like, hey, I'm getting pretty good at this. I'm a pretty humble guy, right? Same thing as far as mercy, generosity. These are things that we can strive to create. Um, but what I want to make sure is understood is that these attributes find their source in God. These are attributes that are clung to because we look to a God who has done these things and we are imitating him and responding to him. So they find their source in God. They are modeled perfectly in Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you cannot miss this. You cannot miss it. Jesus is so, well, he's awesome. <laughs> okay. If you're reading through it, you will, you will see that you can't not see it. And then the third important part of this, and this is also talked about in the epistles, is these attributes are grown by the Holy Spirit. Called the fruits of the Holy Spirit. These are, these are some of them. It's not all of them. But these are grown by the Holy Spirit. So as we recognize God as who he is, as we look to Jesus and model him, that fruit will begin to grow in our lives. It's awesome. All right. So this brings us now to what I think is actually a pretty funny part of this text. Um, and Jesus has just gone through. He's healed this guy, made it tense. He's called out the guests, made it even more tense. He's called out the host, ratcheting up the tension even more. And then this, suddenly this guy just, just speaks up out of nowhere. Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. I was thinking, what? Why did that guy say that? Like, first I thought, okay, is this, did this guy kind of see the light maybe a little bit? Like, did he see the light? And he's like, Yes. And I was like, ah, I don't know, probably not. And then, I, again, as I started, got a chance to dig through some commentaries, this, the humor of this really got driven home because what, what happens here is this guy responds as if by reflex, almost to like a sneeze, and you say, bless you, right? This happened to me just yesterday. Somebody, somebody I don't know, I sneeze, they go, bless you. Awesome. That's, that's nice. Um, but in this same sense, you've got, you've got Jesus, and basically what he does, he has this phrase right at the end, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And then like a bless you to a sneeze, this guy kicks this thing off and says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And he's probably thinking, oh, why did I just say that? Like, I didn't, I didn't want to engage Jesus necessarily right now. Now, so I think there's a little bit of that going on. There's, there's, that, there's that reflex reaction. But then there's also, I think, a desire to kind of like ease the tension a little bit. Kind of like, okay, this is getting a little tense in here. Let me just, this is something we can all agree on here. We're all, we're all inside. We're all Jewish. You know, we're all, we're all guests. We're all invited. So let's high fives all around, right? Like, blessed are us, but, but blessed is those that, that are going to eat in the kingdom of God. Let's high fives all around. And Jesus is like, I'm not high fiving that guy. I'll leave that guy hanging. And instead of diffusing the situation, it's going to get a lot more tense. And that's when we kick in to the parable of the great banquet. Great, 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 great parable. So let's read that one more time, and then we'll get a chance to dig, dig into it a little bit more. So 
Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So, we got the, the, the stage is set. A great banquet is going on. The word great here in Greek is the word megas. So this is like a mega party. When I, when I was trying to think, okay, what's, what's the biggest party or the biggest event gala that we, that kind of gets thrown around or kind of gets put on? First thing I thought of was something called the Met Gala. Some of you may be familiar with this. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I wouldn't necessarily look it up because uh, people that go to these events will decide to dress in ways that you're like, why is that person wearing that? So just put that out there. But the Met Gala, the Met Gala is, I don't have this in my brain, so I'm going to read it. It's a fundraising gala for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute, and it's in New York City, and it is the epitome of luxury, and a ticket to go to the Met Gala is $30,000, and that's just the invitation, because you are then, of course, expected to show up in something that is going to dazzle and be incredible, so whether it's jewelry, I mean, each one of these events is themed, so there's a specific theme that's going, they actually did a Vatican theme one year that rumpled a lot of, ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, but uh, so you've got this event and it's a buy-in event. They put it on, I think they actually do invite some people, but then if you want a ticket, you gotta spend, you gotta spend $30,000 to get a ticket. So that is kind of what I was like, okay, this is, that would be what we consider a mega event. And that's, that's what they're wanting us to capture here. This is a mega banquet. This isn't just some normal banquet. This is a mega banquet. Uh, the big difference, of course, there being that in the Met Gala, you're buying your way in or you're being sponsored to go in. In this one, you're just being invited. All right? So, invitations are sent out. So, people knew in advance, hey, this thing's coming up. I know the date. This is when it's going to be. All right. They accepted the invitation. Servant goes out. Uh, preparations are complete, and the servant is sent out. All right. That's where we find ourselves. Verse 18, 19, 20, and yeah. But... They all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Okay. So we look at those excuses, and, you th and on the face of it initially, for myself, as well, for myself, I read it initially, I was like, I mean, that's, that's kind of a legitimate excuse maybe, right? Not so much. I mean, if you think about each one of those, again, keep in mind, they've known about this great banquet that's going to be coming up. The, inv the invitation was already sent to them. They accepted it. And now it's prepared. So this is something that they have agreed to. Said, yeah, by accepting the invitation, I'll show up. So the servant goes out, tells the first, the first person, says, hey, um, come on to the party. And he says, oh, look, I just bought a field and I need to go check it out. Now, think about it. Like, who would buy a field without knowing what they're buying? Right? I mean, that's just a bad choice right there. <laughs> the chances of this person not having seen the field prior to them buying it is pretty slim. All right? So, I mean, that's, that's pretty offensive. Next one. The guy says, hey, you know, I just bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to try them out. Now, the fact that this person is buying five yoke of oxen uh, highlights in the passage that this is somebody that's pretty well off. Because in, in this context, and again, this is coming from commentaries, they're, they're basically saying that, that means that he would have about 1,000 acres of land. That's a lot of land at that time. So this is somebody who has quite a bit of money. They're buying all these oxen. Why in the world would they not have checked out the merchandise before they bought it? They would have checked out the merchandise. They, 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 would have, they would have, this is a significant investment. There's no way they wouldn't have, right? So you got that. Uh, and then the last one, we've got somebody who says, I'm newly married, I can't come. Congratulations on the new marriage. Now, that does not mean, though, that something that has been, you previously agreed to as far as, even just this is an invitation to a banquet. This isn't like anything other than that. That it's like, oh no, you know, I'm married, I can't come to the party. It's like, what? No, bring, bring, bring the person you just married. What do you mean? You're like, you can bring them along, right? So these are some pretty bad excuses. They're nonsensical and they're really offensive at the heart of them. 
Uh, it's also, I think, important to note that these excuses surround what we would see as kind of normal priorities in our everyday lives. So things like property, things like material objects like the oxen, our relationships. Like these are, these are, these are standard excuses, or not excuses. These, these are standard priorities in everybody's life. Not bad things, not bad things. That's not what I'm saying. But to use them as an excuse to not go to the banquet shows, again, it reveals the heart is what it does. So, servant gets this. He reports back and says, okay, you're not going to like this. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, we have seen this language before. And it's supposed to trigger our minds to go, hey, wait a second. We just talked about the blind, the lame, the crippled, and the poor. And weren't they just in a kind of banquet? So what this does is this highlights what kind of banquet this is. This is a banquet where those present are not expected to in any way repay the generosity of the host. They can't. Let that sink in for a little. There's like awesome gospel truth in there. And so the servant goes and does this, brings those people in. Again, these people would have been, these people, not would have been, these people are considered outcasts. Well, in many societies, thankfully, we live in a country now that looks to care for and, and, uh, and assist in, in ways that they can. But that was this, this, that, this reality is a new reality to what things used to be. So when we hear those words, oftentimes it will initiate in us, oh, well, we want to be compassionate to these people. And we, and we, because that's part of what our, our society is, looks to do. At this time, that was not the case. Sure, you might, you might feel sorry for them, but most of the time people thought, that's, that's God doing that to them. So that's God's, that's, that's, that's God doing it. So I'm just going to stay out of it because I don't want to accidentally receive some of that. All right? Um, so, servant points out, okay, well, hey, I, I did all that, but there is still a lot of room in this house. There's no indication of how big this room is, or big this house is. Um, so then, he goes on to say, all right, well then, the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So, it starts off, we've got invited guests, kind of considered what we, probably a smaller group of people. Then it extends out into the city. We've got going to the, uh, what's the term he uses? The, the streets and alleyways? No, yes, streets and alleys of the town. So just going, going to the streets and alleys of the town. All right, we did that. Still a lot of room in here. Go it even further. Even further is... Foreigners, enemies, people that uh, are definitely outside. I mean, because you could be sick, poor, crippled, or lame and still be Jewish. You'd be inside. But if you're a foreigner, if you are somebody who is not Jewish, then you are definitely on the outside. So this is, this is the mass saying, no, 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 this is everybody. Everybody's invited. Go all the way out. All right. And then... Um, in his final statement there, this is, this is a hard statement to swallow, <laughs> uh, but let's unpack it a little bit. He says, go to the roads and country lanes and compel them, uh, sorry, no, he says, I tell you, not one of those invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's a hard statement. But you got to keep in mind, who are the invited in this parable? The invited are those that, yes, they, have, they received the initial invitation, significant honor, but then they excused themselves from attending. They rejected it, ultimately, and excused themselves. So, 
You've got to keep that in mind. So then the parable ends with the master addressing those, those present at the banquet, and then we're also left with the servant going out. He does the, 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 there's no response from the servant back or anything like that, and that's where we're left. We're left with the servant going out to then compel those to come into the banquet. So let's take a look at our challenges here. Now, somebody who is listening to this parable in the first century, the main thing that they would be challenged with is this sense of election or calling. So the word calling, in Greek it's the word kaleo, that word is used 12 times in verses 7 through 24. So again, in Scripture, when you see things repeated, it's the word invite. When you see things repeated like that, it's supposed to conjure up all of the cultural baggage that you carry about that thing. And in this time, the Jews, and rightly so, the Israelites, and rightly so, were called by God through Abraham. We see this in, uh, I wrote it down here, Genesis 12. They were called by God through Abraham, and, and, you know, as Abraham's seed, and they were a chosen people. But they weren't supposed to be a chosen people that was, you know, playing kind of king, on the, king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal, which is what had started to happen here. They were chosen as a people to be a blessing and a light to all the nations. But this is something that had been started to, to be twisted. Um, and we actually see this as well. Um, <clears throat> and, and so anybody, uh, somebody who would have these things in mind would, uh, would then be able to, they would start to bristle at this thought of, okay, poor, lame, crippled, blind, foreigners, enemies, they're going to enjoy the same birthright and inheritance or the, the same blessing and inheritance that we're gonna that we're gonna take because that, that's our birthright. But Jesus, he uh, he really he, he goes against this. There, there's a great uh, quote here that we'll bring up um, by a guy named uh, Klein Snodgrass. Great last name. Um, he's uh, actually somebody who teaches at North Park, or I don't know if he still teaches at North Park Seminary. Um, but uh, he's got a great book on the parables called Stories with Intent, and he zeroes in on this and basically says. Uh, like John the Baptist and the prophets before him, if we can get that quote, thank you, Jared. Uh, like John the Baptist and the prophets before him, Jesus did not accept that election was established by birth from a Jewish mother. The intent of the parable is that those who assume that they are elect and will be present at the end of the banquet may not be. Um, may not be. Uh, and attendance at the banquet is based on response to the invitation of God, not the title invited one or elected one. So that would have been a primary rub right there for those first century uh, original hearers of this parable. Um, so Jesus makes clear then, so this parable challenges someone who is not a follower, oh sorry, someone who is some, in that area of election, and Jesus makes clear that all are invited to come to the heavenly banquet. Um, next up, uh, what about some of those who have not accepted the invitation? Right? Now, the primary challenge of this parable to someone who has not accepted the invitation is this question. How will I respond to God's invitation? Right? So this call to relationship can be seen as far back in Scripture as Genesis. Genesis 3, 9, or 3, 8 and 9, okay? Adam and Eve have just eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They realize what they've done. They hide themselves. They realize that they're naked. They hide themselves. And then Jesus shows up, or not Jesus, then God shows up. So here we'll pick it up in verse 8 and 9. I'll just read these. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Relationship. Where are you? Hey, we got it. So, and then we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God tr persistently and faithfully calling his people back to him. So if we think, oh, this is, a one this is an invitation that just happens, and if you just, you know, if, if, you're, if you turn your nose up at it one day, then it's gone forever, that's not the case. God is persistently and faithfully calling, calling us back, and we see that. So, uh, how, how will you respond? Jesus makes clear that those who reject the invitation will not get a taste of the heavenly banquet. Again, that's a hard, a 
hard thing to, uh, to swallow. Um, but it's, it's the truth. Now, what about someone who has accepted the invitation? So the primary challenge of this parable to someone who has accepted his invitation is, how am I compelling others to consider their invitation? Now, this is a little bit more subtle in here, and it's actually part of the larger Gospels of, well, all of the Gospels, but the Gospel of Luke, where we see what Jesus invites his disciples into, right? And then we also see it in the Great Commission when we are asked to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching everyone and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So we see that there. We see it when Jesus calls the first disciples and he says, come and I will make you fishers of men, compelling others, drawing others in. So this is an important part of that. Um, so Jesus makes it clear that those who accept his invitation must center their lives around God's revealed truth and he will make them fishers of men from Matthew 4.19. So, I want to be as clear as I can about what this invitation is and the implications of it. So, who is invited? Well, we find out everyone is invited. All are invited to come as they are. And that's incredible. The most luxurious, opulent, mega banquet is open to all to join. How do we respond? Well, we respond by accepting God's invitation and submitting ourselves to him so that our priorities can be realigned. Oh, it says rearranged on there. I didn't like that word because the reality is, is at one point we were aligned. And this isn't a full rearrangement. This is actually a realignment into what is our purpose, what we were made for. And what are we invited to? The next slide there. So we are, this is an invitation to follow Jesus into the very heart of God where we will discover who he is and who he has made us to be. We are, followed, we are invited to follow somebody, to learn, to be a disciple, and anyone can come as they are but you cannot stay the way you are because of the transformational work of the gospel. So this parable is, you might not like this image necessarily, but it's a surgical procedure <laughs> that really lays open the heart of the Pharisees who were listening to it and the experts of the law and any of the other guests. But it does the same in our own lives if we allow it, if we sit with it. Because God is inviting you. And how are you responding? Where are you in your response? Are you caught up like the Pharisees were in kind of the do's and the don'ts and you're looking, you're, you're obsessed with the rules? Are you stuck there? Are you maybe too proud to accept God's authority? Um, a lot of the sermons that we've had lately have really highlighted how there's a, there's a really strong kind of individuality, individualism that has become a part of our culture. Um, so maybe it's there. What kind of excuses are we making? So these are questions that only you can answer, and no one can answer them for you. Now, if you're in here and you're listening and you're thinking, I want to know more about Jesus. If you are deciding to accept an, this invitation, let somebody know. There are people here in the church that would love to talk to you about that. Anybody that's wearing a lanyard is either volunteering or staff in some capacity. They're involved in this church, and they want this church to grow and be a place where people can love each other, love God, and grow and understand more and more what that means. So let somebody know. Now, for what about those who have made a decision to follow Jesus? Now, if you have accepted the invitation, where are you in compelling others to come? Ask yourself that question. 
Ask somebody you are in community that question. This is not something that you can do alone. You cannot do it alone. I cannot do it alone. This needs to be done within life groups, within community. And this needs to be done every day. So God invites everyone to be a part of what he has prepared. We need to hear the invitation and respond to it if we want to take part. And when we accept God's invitation, we join with the perfect servant, Jesus, in his mission to compel everyone towards a relationship with God. Band is out. Awesome. And uh, so with that, let me close in prayer. Jesus, you're... Your divine ability to tell a story that just reveals so much about our hearts, but also reveals so much about your heart, about the heart of God. We are all invited. All of us here, everyone in this city, everyone in this world is invited. What will we do with that invitation? We are free to come as we are, but we see that our allegiance, our primary allegiance needs to be to you, Father. As we sit under your truth, not by ourselves, but linked arm in arm with those around us, other believers, and as we look to become what it is that you want us to be. Thank you, Father, for the work that you've done. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for these parables. In your name, amen.